Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer. All we have is Christ. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray now that as we come to your inspired word, the very word that you have breathed out, we pray now that you would reveal to us the living word. Christ, our Savior. Shine the spotlight on Him this morning. Exalt Him in our midst as we look into Your Word and we pray that as we, as we behold Him and as we see Him through the eyes of faith that You would change us, that You would cause our hearts to love Him more and to treasure Him more that we would be conformed more into his image and likeness. So we pray that you would work through the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to take it this morning and turn with me to 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. If you are a Baptist, and especially if you are a Reformed Baptist, you need to be familiar with the name Andrew Fuller. Some of you perhaps have heard of the name Andrew Fuller before. During the early 19th century, Fuller, he was a pastor for 32 years in a small town in Kettering, England. But not only was he a pastor, Fuller was also a brilliant theologian. And he was an advocate of missions and world evangelization. In fact, Fuller's writings are what helped to ultimately launch the Baptist Missionary Society, or the, as it's known today, BMS World Mission. And even to help jumpstart the modern missions movement. In fact, it was the writings and the work of Andrew Fuller that helped to send William Carey to India. But one of Fuller's most important achievements was his critique of a popular theology of his day known as hyper-Calvinism, sometimes called high Calvinism. During the mid-1700s, the Church of England had experienced significant spiritual renewal, but many particular Baptists, as they were called, those who held to a limited atonement that Christ died only for the elect, they were very suspicious of these revivals, especially because of the Great Awakenings to 
most prominent figures, John Wesley and George Whitfield. Because you see, Wesley, he wasn't a Calvinist. And Whitfield, well, his, his evangelistic preaching and offering of the gospel to the masses, to them at least, it smelled of Arminianism. The hyper-Calvinists, they believe that because of the Father's sovereign election and because of the Son's particular atonement, therefore it was unnecessary or even wrong to offer the gospel freely to all people. You can't call for faith in Christ indiscriminately. Why? Well, because the non-elect can't be saved. And so the practical conclusion was then you could never stand before a group of people and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. No. You must only preach the gospel to those whom you know to be the elect. So as you can see, this squelched any desire for evangelism. It gutted missions in the church and it minimized the necessary element of calling people to repent and believe in the gospel. But Fuller, he understood this view to be a massive distortion not only of Calvinism but of the Bible. And thus, it led him to pen one of the most important documents in Baptist history. It was a work entitled, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, 1785. And in this work, here's what Fuller argues. He argues for the free offer of the gospel to all people. And church, here in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 in 1 Timothy, we find this morning the Apostle Paul, we find his own appeal for why the gospel must be freely offered to all. For why we must proclaim it to all people. And the reason why we discover here is actually rooted in the very nature of the message itself and the very nature of God himself. In fact, here's what I mean. Just notice there before we read our text in verses 4 and 5, we catch a glimpse here of the very heart of God. Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. And then, how are they saved? Verse 5, there's one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The reason we must, church, freely offer the gospel to all people is because it is a universal message and there is only one mediator between God and men. And therefore, it is a gospel that must be freely offered to all. And my prayer for us this morning as we look here is that God, by His Spirit at work within us this morning, as we look at this text he would enable us both individually and corporately to catch his heart and to see the gospel go to all the peoples of the earth. Let's read it together. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand as we honor together the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. Well, here now in chapter 2, we come to a major turning point in this letter. If you remember in chapter 1, Paul, he's been laying down the very foundation of the gospel for life in the church. Paul has left young Timothy, remember, in Ephesus to deal with this problem of false teaching. And we saw, if you remember last week, that Timothy is charged to wage the good warfare. He's charged to guard the gospel and that he himself is charged to hold on to the faith, hold on to a good conscience. And so chapter 1 then, it has been Paul's critique of these false teachers who were preaching a substitute or we could say a false gospel. It was some kind of some form of Jewish heresy that was based on the law. And Paul has also made it very clear what the true gospel is. It, is. it is a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We've seen that. And remember that Paul, he has two main goals in this letter. What are those two goals? Over in chapter 3, if you look there, verses 14 and 15, we will continue to turn here over and over again in order to keep our bearings because this is the very thesis of this entire letter. Chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what are his two main goals? Well, goal number one is he wants the church to guard the truth of the gospel. They're a pillar and buttress of the truth, to guard it from error. The second goal, notice there, is that this gospel must also shape the behavior, shape the life of God's household. So that you may know how one ought to behave, he says, in the church. And so we see again this emphasis here on both right doctrine and righteous living that they must go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So in chapter 1, Paul has been establishing what this gospel is. The right doctrine, and we've seen that very clearly. But now, beginning here in chapter 2, he begins to draw practical application for life in the church. Here is how the gospel that we are saved by and that we're to guard and hold on to, here is how this gospel is now to affect the way we behave, to affect the way we live life together as a church, as God's household. So Paul is now going to shift and spell out for us here how we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, how to live now as God's church. So this is moving now into practical application. Now, before we dig in here, I, I first I want you to see in verses 1 to 7, notice how these verses here, they reveal just a little bit more about what exactly this heresy was that was plaguing the church at Ephesus. 
I told you that the false doctrine that was spreading here in this church, it was Jewish in nature because it was based on the law. In fact, look back there, chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says that these false teachers are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So perhaps these genealogies were limiting salvation only to those in these genealogies. Or who came from these genealogies. And then notice in verse 7 of chapter 1, these false teachers were teachers of the law. Or even we saw in verses 8 to 11, Paul takes this detour here in order to explain the true purpose of the law and why God gave it. They were using it unlawfully. So this this heresy in Ephesus was Jewish in nature. And we see the exact same problem here in verses 1 to 7. How so? Well, Because what these verses show us this morning is that one of the main problems, one of the main issues in the church at Ephesus was they were being exclusive. The church had turned into an elitist club, some kind of exclusivism, and they were limiting salvation only to a select few. Now, where do you see that? Well, look there, verse 1. Yes, Paul's going to address this issue of prayer, but listen, this passage isn't ultimately about prayer. No. I never saw this until this week. Instead, this passage is about, church, our heart and desire to see the gospel go to all peoples. This passage is about our love for the lost world. It is about our love for unbelievers. It is about our love for people who are not like us. It's about God's heart for the world. In fact, just notice how that word all is used there four times in these verses. Look there, verse 1, I urge that you pray, Paul says, for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse 3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Verse 6, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. What is Paul doing here? He is combating a false doctrine that has turned this church inward. They've become exclusive. And as a result, they have no heart for the lost. They have no desire to reach the unbelieving world around them. No, the gospel has become only for a select few. Would that be said of any churches today? Would that be said of this church? Now, the dominant theme in this passage is the universal offer and scope of salvation for all people. And so Paul's going to correct their faulty understanding of the gospel and who it's for. And this is where he turns first. Notice here that while this heresy that's going on in Ephesus, while it may be Jewish in nature, it still applies today. So two headings I want you to see. First, prayer for all people, verses 1 and 2. Prayer for all people. And then second, a salvation for all people, verses 3 to 7. 
So here's what we see. In verses 1 to 2, Paul's command, his exhortation is to pray. And then in verses 3 to 7, then, he's going to give the reasoning. He's going to give the theological basis for why we are to do so. So first notice, prayer for all people, verses 1 and 2. And in verse 1, notice, here's what we must understand right up front. So that verses 1 to 7, they land on us in the way that Paul intends and the way that God intends. In verse 1, when Paul says, first of all, you see it there, he isn't merely referring to a list of topics. This isn't just the first thing Paul comes to in this list of topics he wants to address with this church. It's just one of many topics. No, when he says, first of all here, he is saying, this is the first priority. Literally, the first of all things. So in other words, this is, this is what is important above everything else. One commentator says, this should be understood as first in importance, not as first in time. Meaning he's not just saying, here's the first thing I'm going to talk about. No, this is of first priority. This is number one. This is what matters most. Everything else he wants to say to the church, this is number one. Now that right there should cause you to sit up and listen. First in priority? Wow. What could be that important? And as Paul opens here with these instructions for how the church ought to function and live in light of the gospel, what's the first priority? Look at verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So what is first then on Paul's priority list? We pray. It's prayer. And Paul is very clear to drive that command home because notice he uses four different words for prayer. Verse 1, supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. We're to pray. Now those, those could all be parsed out and described in more detail, each highlighting a different aspect and kind of prayer, but essentially they're all the same. Paul's making his point through repetition. What's his point? We must pray. We must pray. We must, we must plead to God to meet the needs of others on their behalf. We thank God and intercede for others. We are to be grateful that we can approach the throne of God with grace and that Jesus has made a way to that throne and that He hears our prayers as His children. He's our Father. And so we are to pray, church. That's number one on the list. That's the first priority. Okay. Pray for what? What are we to pray for? Is this just a general call to prayer or is there something more specific that we should pray for? What are we to pray for? And the answer to that question is found down in verses 3 and 4. Skip down there with me for a moment, if you will. We'll come back to verse 2. What are we to pray for? Look at verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now stop right there. What is good and pleasing? What 
What is this referring to in verse 3? Well, I think it's referring back to our praying in verse 1. This is good and pleasing in God's sight. Why is it good and pleasing? Verse 4, he tells us, because God desires all people to be saved. So what are we to pray for? Verse 1, the priority is to pray that people get saved. That's the priority, folks. We, we, we should pray for the salvation of unbelievers. Of all people, he says, verse 4. Listen, the, the priority for Second Baptist Church should be that we are a church praying evangelistic kinds of prayers. And it's clear that Paul is saying this isn't just something that we do occasionally. This isn't just something we focus on from time to time or we just kind of tack on at the end of a prayer service. No, this must be a top priority for the church. First of all, then, pray. Now, again, top priority? Really, Paul? Think about it. Think about this. If, if the church is meant to function as a pillar and buttress of the truth, as chapter 3, verse 15 says, right? We are, we are an outpost here of God's kingdom on this earth. And if it is from the church that the gospel advances, it's from the church that the gospel goes forth, then it makes sense that praying for the gospel to advance, praying for people to be saved should be the first priority. Amen? But listen, if we are going to be a church that keeps the gospel at the center, then it must show up in how we pray. We must pray evangelistic prayers, which is easier said than done. Why? Well, because we get distracted, right? We, we get distracted in the church. Other things take priority. Other things cause us to lose our focus, and we lose sight of the main thing. And we got to keep the main thing the main thing. And if we truly believe that people all around us right now are running headlong to hell, we must pray. We must pray. So, as, as I was personally convicted this week, you, you get the conviction right now. I've been dealing with it all week. <laughs> That's one of the benefits of sermon prep. Maybe that means we should turn off the TV, we should put down the smartphone, and we should pray that God would save sinners. So let's ask ourselves this question. Is this, this kind of prayer, a priority for the church? I, I challenged even our elders this week that we must continue to make this a priority in our corporate praying together. In fact, just next month, which is the month of Ramadan, it's the holy month for the Muslim people, we, we're going to plan to pray specifically each week for one of our Central Asia mission partners. Because church, this must be the first priority. So is it a priority? Is it a priority in your small group? Is it a priority in your 
life and in your personal prayer time that God would save sinners. Which leads us then to ask the question, okay, who are we to pray for? If that's what we're to pray for, then who are we to pray for specifically? And the answer to that question is simple now. We pray evangelistic prayers for unbelievers, right? But let's just unpack that a little bit more because look there in verses 1 and 2. Paul gives us here two groups of people we're to pray for. Two kinds of people. Notice, first, we pray for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Look at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So who are we to pray for? Well, he's not saying you're to pray individually for all 7 billion people on the planet. When he says all people, you could say it like this, all kinds of people. All kinds of people. In other words, our evangelistic prayers should be full of diversity and praying for all people. And praying that the gospel would spread to all people. How are we doing it praying like this? All kinds of people. John Stott, he tells this story. He says this. He says, some years ago I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which is also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession could hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Which means, church, we should pray for all kinds of people. We should pray for Muslims. We should pray for Hindus and Buddhists. We should pray for Republicans. We should pray for Democrats. We should pray for Iranians. We should pray for Russians. We should pray for Ukrainians. We should pray for Tajiks. We should pray for those in Washington, D.C. Why? Because God is calling us, church, to have a worldwide perspective of the advancement of His kingdom. And so we pray. And by doing so, get this, we get to participate in His worldwide mission through our prayers. That's amazing. That's amazing. We get to participate in what God's doing all over the world by praying that God would save all kinds of people. And then right after Paul says we pray evangelistically, he gives one example, another example, not only for all kinds of people, He's an example, specifically, of who he has in mind when he says all people. Look there, verse 2. Pray for governing officials. Are you ready for more conviction? Verse 1, we are to pray evangelistically for all kinds of people. But another example of this, verse 2, is for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, why does Paul give that example? Why, 
Of all, of all the examples he could give, why that one? Well, I think there could be several reasons why. And none of them are wrong, necessarily. Why should we pray for governing officials? Well, he tells us very clearly why we are to do so. Look there at verse 2, the end of verse 2. We're to do this, that, so here's the reason why, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, at first, that sounds like a very selfish kind of prayer to me. <laughs> Doesn't it? Pray for governing officials so that we can just live peaceful lives. But Paul's main point isn't just to pray so that we're going to have pain-free, conflict-free lives. No. Remember the context. His desire, above everything else, is the salvation of all people. Now, some commentators focus here on that phrase, peaceful and quiet lives, while others focus on the phrase, godly and dignified in every way. And they come to differing conclusions here on what Paul's getting at here. So let me just give you those two different ways of understanding this, but I think both make sense here. Here's the first reason he says pray so that we can live godly, dignified, peaceful lives. First, we are to pray for governing officials because one of the benefits of good government, one of the benefits of a well-ordered government and society is that it allows the church freedom to fulfill its mission of spreading the gospel. So this, is a, this isn't a selfish kind of prayer. This is a gospel-centered kind of prayer. It is to pray that the government and those who govern us would allow favorable conditions for the gospel to spread with ease. And, and by doing so, to continue to allow it to be proclaimed and heard and shared. So verse 2, we pray for the favor even of kings and those in high positions. That's one way to understand and interpret here verse 2. Two, and yet, do not forget, however, that often it is when the church experiences the most opposition and persecution that the church spreads, the most. Tertullian, the early church father, said, you've heard this quote before, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, it's often in the times of greatest persecution that the church explodes, Perhaps Paul's saying we should pray for favor from our governing officials that the gospel might advance. But here's a second way, I think, to interpret this verse. It's a little bit different take. It's that we're to pray for governing officials because by doing so, by being good, honorable citizens, not living sectarian lives, praying for all people, and living peaceful, quiet lives, exhibiting godliness in the world, by doing that, we don't bring dishonor on the name of Christ. We don't bring shame on the gospel. In other words, the reason we are to pray like this is because Paul wants the church to have a good reputation in the world. He's going to say that over and over again in this letter. He's concerned with the reputation of the church, reputation of the gospel in an unbelieving world. But whichever way you interpret it, what's his main concern? 
It's the spread of the gospel. That it doesn't have any hindrances getting in the way of people being saved. So we're to pray. But if I could just want to offer, offer one more suggestion for why he mentions praying for governing authorities. It's because, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there any group of people less likely to be prayed for? Is there any group more hated and despised than politicians? Governing authorities. Is there any group of people less likely to come to Jesus? So then why wouldn't we pray for their salvation as well? After all, isn't that the context here? All kinds of people? After all, let's not forget who was king when Paul wrote this. Nero. There is not a more evil, wicked, despised, cruel, insane leader in history than Nero, who threw Christians to the lions for sport and burned their bodies as human torches for his dinner parties, and who would ultimately kill the Apostle Paul. Nero, that guy. In verse 2, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, pray, pray for Nero's conversion. Pray for God's favor with kings and governors. Oh, that God might even save them. So ask yourself this question. When was the last time I prayed for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to become a Christian? Or am I just always mad that they don't act like one? When was the last time I prayed for Nancy Pelosi? Or J.B. Pritzker. Church, what if we use the time that we typically spend complaining about these people on our knees praying for them? What, what if we were less concerned about earthly political agendas and more concerned about the worldwide proclamation of the gospel? Would that change our prayers? You betcha. But don't miss Paul's point here. What's his point? Here's his point. That the progress of the gospel and the spread of God's kingdom around the world, in one sense, it is dependent on our prayers. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Meaning that God has created and He has established a universe that operates on cause and effect. And he's not only ordained the ends, he's ordained the means to the ends, and he ordains that our prayers for the salvation of sinners would be the cause that brings about the effect of their salvation. How amazing is that? What a privilege. What a privilege, church. And so how do we respond to that kind of truth? We pray Big, worldwide kinds of prayers for the salvation of all kinds of people. We pray. But then look there, verses 3 to 7, Paul transitions now and he tells us now why we should pray this way. 
In other words, he turns, look there, verses 3 to 7, and gives us here the theological motivation that should fuel these kinds of prayers. Why should we pray like this? And I see here two reasons why. Two reasons we should pray for the salvation of all people. Two, what we'll call theological groundings for why to pray for the lost. Here's point number two, a salvation for all people. So look at these two theological groundings he gives here. And one, notice we're going to see, is rooted in the very nature of God himself, God's heart, God's desire. And the other, notice, is rooted in the exclusivity of the gospel message. You say, what do you mean? Well, let, let me show you what I mean. Notice both of these theological groundings here. Theological grounding number one. Notice there, in verses three and four, we should pray for the salvation of all people because God wants all people to be saved. Look at verse three. This is good, meaning this kind of praying, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So this kind of evangelistic prayer, it pleases God. Why? Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So why pray evangelistically? Answer, because it is within the very heart of God to save all people. Verse 3, he desires it. He wants all people to be saved. And therefore, our praying is motivated by God's passion and His love for the world. So, listen, one of the reasons we pray is not only because God chooses to accomplish His purposes in and through our prayers. That's amazing. But one of the reasons we also pray is because by doing so, it aligns our heart with God's heart. As we pray, it is aligning our wills, our hearts, with God's hearts, God's heart. And God's heart is really, really big. Verse 3, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, do you want to do good? Do you want to do what pleases God? Here's how you do it. You pray for the salvation of all people. Now, I know, I mean, I'm, I'm not aloof, I can sense it, that some of you are already pushing back a little here. All people? Verse 4 is not without its controversy, amen? Because I just said God wants all people to say, be saved. But let me encourage you to allow this text to say what it says. That's what Paul says. All people. So we, listen, we don't try to force the Bible into our theological framework. We bring our theological framework in submission to the Bible. And the Bible says... God desires all people to be saved. Now, let me be absolutely clear what Paul is and is not saying. 
First, allow me to clarify what he isn't saying. Paul isn't saying that all individual people will be saved. He isn't teaching universalism. He isn't teaching that all people are going to be saved. No, no, the Bible makes that abundantly clear. First Timothy makes that abundantly clear. Not all people will be saved. So even though God desires all people to be saved, it doesn't mean that all people will be saved. That's the first thing this passage is not teaching. Here's the second thing. Paul isn't saying that God's purposes in salvation can be thwarted. <laughs> like he desires all people to be saved, but he just doesn't have the power or the ability to do it. No. Isaiah 46 verse 9, For I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Nothing can thwart his sovereign plan. Nothing can disrupt it. No, he is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the salvation of all people. His plans can't be stopped. Nor is Paul saying here that even though God wants something to happen to save some, he doesn't necessarily make it happen because he gives free will in order for people to decide as if his will is contingent on something else. No. So what is he saying then? Here's what he's saying. Write it down. Our God is gloriously, mysteriously complex. We don't fit him into our finite minds. He is God and we are not. And God's will is so gloriously complex that he can desire something in more than just one sense. Huh. Theologians say there are two ways in which God wills things. Two ways. The first is what we call his providential will, or we could say his, his secret will, his sovereign will, his will of decree, what will come to pass. I mean, you pick it, whatever you want to say. And then second is what theologians call his revealed will, or his moral will, or, or the things he desires, his will of commands. God's providential will means his sovereign plan for the universe that doesn't change. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And this will is often hidden from us. We, we, we don't know it oftentimes until it happens. But it doesn't change. But there's a second will as well. It's the revealed will, we'll call it, or the moral will of God, meaning He desires things, what pleases Him, things like His commands, which can be disobeyed. So God is able to morally desire all people to be saved, and yet providentially not bring it about. He can will one thing to happen while also willing a different thing to come to pass. I told you he's complex. Case in point, the cross. Acts chapter 2, maybe you need to look at it. Acts chapter 2, it'll be up there on the screen for you as well. 
Verse 23, listen to what Peter says. This is amazing. Peter says, Acts 2.23, this Jesus, preaching at Pentecost, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What will is that? That's his sovereign will. But then look at the next phrase. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Meaning it was against his moral will to kill his innocent son. Right there together. And church, we must be okay with mystery. And simply place our hands over our mouths. And say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. God desires all people to be saved. That's his revealed will. But not all people will be saved. That's his secret providential will. And God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation. Mystery. But there's more that could be said about verse 4. I mentioned it a moment ago. Look there, verse 4. When Paul says, God desires all people to be saved, he means all different kinds of people. In other words, he's talking here about people from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth, without exception. And we know that because of what he just said back in verse 1 when he said, pray for all kinds of people. Remember, what is Paul combating here? Context is king. He's battling religious exclusivism. He's battling any notion that salvation is just for a select few group of people. No. In fact, it stretches all the way back to Abraham to save all kinds of people. Genesis 12, 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's a universal gospel for all people. And therefore, we must pray for all people to be saved and for the gospel to advance because God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Theological grounding number two. Why we should pray for the salvation of all people. Verses five and six, because of the exclusivity of the gospel message. The exclusivity of the gospel message. Yes, it is universally for all, but it is also narrow. And it is exclusive. Look at verse 5. Where there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 5, notice Paul simply states, there is one God. There's one God. There's, this is no doubt a reference to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, the heart and soul of Jewish monotheism. There is one God and only one God. There isn't one God for this people and another God for that people. No, there is one 
and only one God who is worthy of the praise of all the peoples of the earth. There is one God, there is one King, there is one ruler over all, and His name alone is to be hallowed among all the peoples of the earth. And so just follow Paul's reasoning here. Because there is one God and only one God, we must pray that all people come to know the truth of this one God. Well, that's too exclusive, people say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's just, church, unashamedly admit what we're regularly criticized for. We are exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive because there's only one God. But it gets even more exclusive than that. Look at verse 5. Not only is there only one God, there's only one way to this God. Not all roads lead to God. Not all paths lead to the same place. No, verse 5, look there. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, humanity, mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Talk about exclusive. There's only one God, and there is only one way to this God. And it is through, he says in verse 5, the man, Christ Jesus. He alone is the one mediator. Mediator. A mediator would act as a go-between. They stood in between, in the middle, between two parties. You can think in the Old Testament of the priest who would represent God to the people. He would represent the people to God. He was the mediator. And so in other words, Paul, he is saying here, there is one God, and this one God who is infinitely holy, He is infinitely just, He is a God who cannot look upon sin, and you and I, we are sinful, we are rightly deserving of His judgment, and so we are separated by an infinite chasm, and there is no way that a mere man could bridge this infinite chasm. No. We need someone to bridge that chasm for us. Verse 5, we need a mediator. And there's only one mediator. It's the man, Christ Jesus. And he alone is uniquely qualified to be this one mediator because he alone is the only one who could fully identify with both God and men because he is the God-man. He is fully divine and he is fully human and therefore he was without sin, he was fully divine, and yet he was also fully human in every way except without sin, and he has bridged the gap. How? Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid a ransom. He paid with his life. He paid a price that we owe that we could never pay on our own. Only God could pay this. Only the blood of God 
could wash away and remove the stain of sin. And Christ's work on the cross, it was sufficient to bridge the gap between God and man because He is the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, He's the only way. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Now, just notice there in verse 6 with me. Look there again. Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. For whom did Christ die? That's a controversial question. Well, the all in verse 6 is governed by all the other alls in this passage. Meaning that the death of Christ on the cross, it actually purchased, that's what a ransom means, didn't just make it possible. He purchased and secured a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the earth, and that his death actually accomplished salvation for his people. In fact, it's very interesting that Paul's statement there in verse 6, look there, that he gave his life as a ransom for all, it, it parallels very closely with Jesus' own statement about his death. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, be up there on the screen for you as well. Look at this. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Almost the same as Paul, but not quite. Now, why does Jesus say many? Why not say all, like Paul? Well, the reason is because Jesus, and I think Paul as well, is alluding here to Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 11, is what it says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, will see is a better way to say it, I think. Will. We don't talk in shalls. Will he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Will the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? He will bear their iniquities. He will divide their spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Notice this phrase. Yet he bore the sins of many. This is what both Jesus and Paul are referring to. Christ would come and He would die and He would give His life to purchase and to pay for many. Beloved, this is a definite atonement. His finished work has secured the salvation for many. And therefore, we pray for Christ to save all of His people all over the world. We don't just pray. Yes, God uses our prayers to accomplish His salvation of all His people, but there's more. There's more that's necessary. In fact, just look there at verse 7. We'll end here. Verse 7, finally, look what he says. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What's Paul mean here? He's saying his ministry to preach the gospel flows from these two theological groundings. For this, verse 7, this, this message he just said, I was appointed a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. Now, why does Paul feel the need to remind Timothy and the church at Ephesus he's an apostle to the Gentiles? Because he wants them to know who this gospel's for. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for all people. You know what? Church, this is true of each one of us as well. We, we too, like Paul, we are and must be proclaimers of this message. We are not off the hook here. No, we have been appointed to be heralds of the gospel message. Romans 10 says, because faith comes by hearing, and how can they hear unless we preach the gospel? They must hear in order to be saved. And God has ordained that cause that we preach the gospel that affects the salvation of all His people. It's not only our praying, it's our proclaiming. And that has to be a top priority for us. And here's the deal, I think. The more we pray for sinners to be saved, church, and the more we realize that God desires for all people to be saved, and the more we realize that there is one God who is worthy of all the praise of all the peoples of the earth, and that Jesus is the only mediator between God and men, the more we will be compelled to this great end, without which no one can be saved. Let me end where I began. A quote from Andrew Fuller. Fuller writes, The gospel is a feast, and you are to invite guests. You may have many excuses and refusals, but be you concerned to do as your Lord commands. And when you have done your utmost, there will still be room. Dwell on the freeness and fullness and all sufficiency of His grace and how welcome even the worst of sinners are who renounce all others, fleeing only to Him. Let's pray. Father, it is a good thing to feel conviction. It is a good thing to be convicted this morning by your Spirit. Because it is evidence that your Spirit is at work in us, shaping us. Conforming us into the image of Christ. Aligning our hearts with your own heart. And so, Father, we see very clearly this morning in this passage your heart. Your desire for the gospel to go to all the peoples of the earth. Lord, would you see fit to grant us that heart? To be passionate ambassadors of the gospel. Because Jesus is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And he is the only mediator between God and men. So Lord, make us faithful, we pray. Send us out from this place as we go into 
our spheres of influence this week. We pray that we would be ambassadors of Christ. We would be faithful to proclaim the gospel message because how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless we proclaim? So help us, Lord, to be faithful to this top priority you've given to the church. Help us to be faithful to pray that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth so that your name and your renown would be made famous all over this world. Jesus, we trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.